as you're grabbing your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Acts chapter 6 to the passage that was just read for us. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight. So Acts chapter 6. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Anthony Davis. Uh, Anthony Davis is an all-star power forward. He currently plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. Prior to that, he was a new, with the New Orleans Pelicans for a while, which is where uh, Kim and I ran for a little while in New Orleans. And uh, and uh, I've always kind of followed his career. I, I, I like him. And, and uh, Kim, a few years ago, got us tickets to, to go watch the Golden State Warriors and the New Orleans Pelicans play years ago. And so we took a little trip down there, just her and I and, and Delaney at the time. And we watched the game. And, and before, so, uh, before doing so, Kim got us all T-shirts and she had them screened. And, and uh, one, one of his unique features is this unibrow that he just kind of owns. And it's fantastic the way he owns it. And so Kim got, made me a T-shirt with his silhouette on it. And unibrow was clearly present there, and, and the slogan, bow to the brow, uh, was put there, and it was a hope, I was hoping it would catch on and kind of trademark it and make a little money off, it, off of it. It hadn't happened yet, but uh, since then, Anthony Davis has been traded to the Los Angeles Lakers, and that's where he's kind of uh, wrecking the league right now. If you're familiar with his story, when he was a sophomore in high school, he was only six foot two. Now, if you're six foot two in high school, you're a tall guy. Uh, but if you go into the NBA and you're six foot two, you're still kind of small. And, uh, but something happened between his sophomore year in high school and his senior year, three years, Anthony Davis grew eight inches. And he sprung up from being six foot two as a sophomore to six foot 11 as a senior. He went from getting one scholarship offer to Cleveland State University to becoming the most highly sought after recruit in high school in the country. And he eventually got a scholarship at Kentucky, went over there, they won a national championship, and kind of the rest is history. But could you imagine being Anthony Davis's parents from his sophomore year in high school all the way to his senior year in high school? How many different pairs of shoes you would have to buy to fit his ever-expanding feet? All the clothes you're going to have to account for as he's outgrowing every inches during that time. His coaches, of course, in celebrating the growth that he's experiencing, right? He goes from being a six foot two point guard, which is fairly tall for a point guard, to becoming a six foot 11, 11 power forward. And so, as a coach, you're excited about that change. You want to see that growth happen. You, you believe that's going to be advantageous for your team, but you also know there's some skills that he's going to have to develop, that there's some skills that he's going to have to cultivate because he, do, he does not currently possess them. And so, instead of bringing the ball up and down the court and, and and passing the ball, making, running the plays, all of those good things. He had to learn how to post moves and score and play the game in a completely different way. So on one hand, his growth was exciting and everybody was celebrating it. But on the other hand, it brought some challenges as he had to learn how to do a few things differently. Well, here in Acts chapter 6, we are given a glimpse of a growing church. This is the first church, the church in Jerusalem, where Christianity exploded as the Holy Spirit came upon people at Pentecost, and many people were believing the gospel, and the church is formed, and it is growing at a rapid rate. And the growth of the church in the city of Jerusalem is something worth celebrating, is something worth getting excited about. But what you're going to see in Acts chapter 6 is that it's also something that carried with it some challenges which is something you and I want to consider today as we consider being a church that wants to grow and that is growing in various ways. And, and as a church, we want to celebrate growth, but at the same time, we want to recognize that there are some challenges at play when a church begins to grow. 
Now, when you look at verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, and in that moment, Luke is just calling our attention to the fact that the church was growing in Jerusalem. And he's spotlighting it in a brief way, but in a way that I believe is supposed to encourage the celebration of churches that grow. The reason why I think that is because there's about ten times, ten times in the book of Acts where Luke summarizes and calls our attention to churches that are growing. And he brings this information forward for people like you and I to read and to see how Jesus was on the move to build his church and show us that it is possible for churches to grow. And when churches grow, it's something that should be celebrated and acknowledged. I'll give you the references. Ten times Luke does this type of thing. I just want you to see how frequently he points out that the church is growing. Chapter 2, verse 41. So those who accepted his message, referring to Peter, they were baptized And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So overnight, the church grew 3,000 strong. Chapter 2, verse 47, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 4, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So the church is growing. Chapter 5, verse women. Chapter 9, verse 30, the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Chapter 13, verse 49, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole church is growing. That's what it means for the word to spread. It means the church is growing more. 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Chapter 19, verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. The church is flourishing in the midst of all of this. Then chapter 21, verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed. Over and over again, the growth of the church is something worth church because the growth of the church is something worth celebrating. The growth of the church is something worth pursuing. We want to see the church grow, but we only want to see the church grow in a certain kind of way. Because we know growth in and of itself isn't always a good thing. It is possible for unhealthy things to grow. They're called tumors, right? A tumor can grow in the body, and it should not be celebrated. An unhealthy group of people can grow and it not be worth celebrating. So we want to celebrate the growth of the church, but we want to qualify the type of growth we're talking about. And I think this qualification comes in the previous chapter at the end of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, verse 42, this kind of accounts for how the church was growing in that moment. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued, that is referring to the disciples, the apostles, those who were walking with Jesus, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the kind of growth that we want to see. This is the type of growth that we want to celebrate. It's a growth that comes because we are expressing the gospel. And it is a growth that is coming because we as a people are embodying the gospel. Earlier in chapter 4, Luke calls our attention to how the church was caring for everyone and everyone was feeling loved and cared for and known and engaged in the body. It was the embodiment of the gospel at work in the church. When we talk about growth worth celebrating, that's what we're talking about. It is possible to expand a crowd and to attract lots of people, but the question is what is that crowd and what is that group of people rallying around? And if the answer to that question is any reality other than the reality of the gospel, then it is not growth worth celebrating. The growth we want to celebrate and the growth we want to seek after 
in our church is a growth that comes by way of the gospel because we are expressing it clearly and because we are embodying it and how we relate to one another and how we care for the city in which God has placed us. So we want to grow and we want to celebrate that growth. It's estimated at this point in time in Acts chapter 6, there's somewhere in the range between 10,000 to 20,000 Christians comprising the church in Jerusalem. It was a big group of people all being transformed by the gospel. So that's the kind of growth we want to see, and that's the kind of growth we want to celebrate. But with that kind of growth comes some challenges. You see these challenges here in Acts chapter 6, right after Luke points out that the disciples were increasing in number. Listen to what he says. He says, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So this growth was worth celebrating. But Luke's also reminding us, I want you to be sober-minded about growth because growth can and will inevitably bring some challenges into the community. As you learn to adapt to the growth, as you learn to conform to what Jesus is doing and adding to the church day by day, those who are being saved. And there's a few challenges I want to put before you in light of this passage, one of which is this. When a church grows, one of the challenges that can be presented is a challenge to our unity. As new people step into the family of faith and Pastoral attention is given in different directions, and things are changing and adjusting. We can also see that growth as see that growth as a good thing worth celebrating, but we can also see that growth as a challenge we need to be aware of so that we're not stunted, so that these challenges are not sabotaging or prohibiting the growth of the church or the spread of the gospel to continue. And one of the ways in which this pops up is when churches begin to grow, growth can challenge our unity. In this story, you have two different groups of people. On one hand, you have the Hebrew, the Hebraic Jews. These were Jewish people who basically spent their entire life in the city of Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They were very faithful in their Judaic heritage. And when they came to know that Jesus was the Messiah, that brought their faith full circle. It completed everything that they had been seeking after as a people up to that point. But then outside of Jerusalem and outside of that, that Mecca of Jewish life, you had a lot of Jewish people living in the surrounding region who were heavily influenced by the Greek culture. And as such, they came to be known as the Hellenistic Jews that are present here. A Hellenistic Jew is quite simply a Jewish man or a Jewish woman who spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. Now, outside of the church and outside of Christ, there was some tension existing between these two groups of people. The Hebraic Jews, they kind of looked down on the Hellenistic Jews and viewed them in some ways as being less pure and less refined and less devout as them since they were the Hebrew-speaking Jews that lived and operated in Jerusalem. So you have these two groups of people outside of Christ and outside of the church where there was already some tension. And now they've, all, they've both come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're stepping into the church at Jerusalem and they're trying to figure out how to live life together and follow Jesus together. And, but there comes this situation where the Hellenistic Jewish widows, uh, their needs seem to be overlooked and are being neglected by the leadership of the church. And so they have this healthy concern, right? A legitimate concern. Hey, we're not getting any of the food that's being passed out on a daily basis. We're not getting any of the clothes that's being given to us, given to people on a daily basis. Well, what's, they have this healthy, legitimate concern. But what Luke does in verse 1 is he doesn't call attention per se to the healthy concern as much as he 
makes us aware of the fact that that concern has devolved into a complaint. And there's a difference between having a healthy concern about something and having an unhealthy and an un, making an unhealthy complaint about something. And so what you find in verse 1 is that one of the challenges of the growth that the church is experiencing is a challenge of unity. Because of this mix, this messy situation, the Hellenistic Jewish widows are now, the word is complaining, and they're complaining in a particular direction. They're complaining against the, the, the Hebraic Jews in the church. And this happens every time churches grow and new people are added and different types of people come into the church and following Jesus. We're so different from each other. And sometimes our differences can cause us to read situations in ways that are unfair. They can cause us to read situations that are ungracious. They can cause us to interpret healthy concerns instead of dealing with healthy concerns. It can cause us to relate to those healthy concerns in a way that is more grumbling-oriented, more complaining-oriented, in a word, in a way that is more divisive. Now, I know that we as a church, being eight years in this city, we're, we're a young church, we're a growing church. We have people coming in and out of this church at a rapid rate, and it's an encouraging thing to be a part of. But with all the movement and with all the growth, there are times in which, in the history of our church, when different groups in our church have felt overlooked, or they felt unknown, or unseen, or un cared for. I remember early on in the days, we were heavily filled with college students and singles. That was the vast majority of our congregation the first two to three years of our church's existence. And I remember uh, families who would come into the church and we'd experience growth by way and, and that growth would only last for a little while because they would look around and they would see all these singles and college students and they would assume that we did not care about them and that we had no plan or attention to minister to families and with kids and all these types of things. And so it was time when that kind of rocked things up and those families would move on and they would leave the church, some of whom would leave having grumbled and complained about that dynamic in our church. But then over the years, it's interesting because then there was a shift about years four or five or so where the demographic completely changed. And we woke up one day seeing we were mostly uh, young professionals and married couples and we had very few college students and very few singles for a little while. And there was a temptation for some of the singles in our church to read the situation and draw the conclusion, oh, you guys don't care about singles. You guys don't care about uh, college students. If you did, you would be looking in our direction. You would be caring for our needs. You would be doing things for us. And, and they would, and this grumbling and complaining would start, and then eventually some would leave, and they, that would be kind of how they, how they would do so. Now, as a church grows, there are, teen, there are times when the concerns of the church might not square with your immediate concern, but that doesn't mean that you are un, that you that we don't care about you and about where you are in life. It means that we are a growing church, and as we grow, we have to learn how to care for everybody in the church. So we don't want our 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 legitimate concerns to devolve into unhealthy complaints. And the way that you keep that from happening is by remembering anytime grumbling or complaining begins to swell up in your heart, you check it by saying or reminding yourself, you know, I, I don't see the whole picture. I, I'm only seeing this little slice of my experience in the, the church. And I'm not 
sure I'm seeing the whole picture. And once you kind of remind yourself of that, then you can step into a conversation that can be more productive. And you can say, hey, can you help me understand why this is the way it is in the life of the church? Is this the way it will always be? What are some things that you are doing to meet this need or to care for that group? And you start asking questions rather than standing back and grumbling against leadership or grumbling against any other group or demographic that's in the church. So you remind yourself, I'm not seeing the whole picture really at any point in time, so I need to press into conversation so I can learn. But then the second thing I would encourage you to do is avoid assuming the worst. Sometimes the situation is you're not ministering to me and my demographic because you don't care about us. That's, an, that's a terrible assumption to make. That's a graceless assumption to make of anyone. But if we're going to avoid our healthy concerns devolving into unhealthy complaints, we have to refuse to assume the worst of people. We don't want to draw the conclusion, well, this need isn't being met because they don't care. This passage puts this before us. It's clear that this group of people in the church aren't being overlooked because they don't care about this group. That's why they took action so quickly to remedy the situation. So they want everybody to be cared for. They want to organize so that everybody can be cared for. And I assure you, so do we. So if there's anything lacking in our church, if there's any holes that you see, and when growth happens and we begin to, these things become more pronounced, let me encourage you to remember that you only see part of the picture and let that press you into some good, constructive conversations. And let me encourage you not to assume the worst of your leadership and not to assume the worst of anyone else in the church. One of the things that we do as graceful people, as gospel people who do not assess anyone according to the flesh anymore, is that we don't, we don't assume the worst Assuming the worst of people and complaining out of our assumptions is a really unhealthy and it's a spiritually immature thing to do. And so we want to avoid that. We want to resist that. We don't want healthy, legitimate concerns to devolve into unhealthy complaints that can cause division and friction in the church. Now, if you have some concerns, let me encourage you to pray through your concerns. Ask in humility, God, should I overlook this? Should I be patient with this? And then ask yourself, if you are to address them, would you address them in a way in which you're assuming the best of the person that you're about to talk to or the people that you are about to engage? See, the thing about grumbling and complaining is that complaining is easy. You don't need the Holy Spirit to grumble. You don't need the Holy Spirit to complain. Complaining is like growing weeds. Everybody will succeed at growing weeds in a garden. It's easy to do. It just happens. What's less helpful is instead of complaining about something, stepping into a conversation that can lead towards solutions, that can lead towards improvement. That requires a little more work. That requires a little more effort. It's harder to grow fruit and vegetables in a garden than it is to grow weeds. But fruit and vegetables are a lot more life-giving. They are a lot more life-giving than having a garden full of weeds. And so recognize that complaining and grumbling is easy. You don't need the spirit to do that. But stepping into spirit-filled solutions to improve the health of a church, the health of a growing church, that requires faith, that requires humility, that requires the reliance upon the Holy, the Holy Spirit. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, we are told, look, don't let weeds grow. Philippians chapter 2, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. 
so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Now, I love that connection. The connection between grumbling and complaining and shining like stars. What causes the gospel to dim in the life of the church? What causes the gospel to dim in your discipleship? One of the most frequent causes of a dimmed gospel in your life or in a church is a spirit or an attitude of grumbling and complaining. A spirit that says, I'm going to be against people. I'm not going to move to working with people. A spirit that says, I'm going to, I'm going to step back and complain and protest everything. I'm not going to press in and work to find solutions so that improvements can be made. And healthy growth can continue. I love this example in Ephesians, or Acts chapter 6. Is that right after this problem is brought out. And they're aware of all the grumbling and complaining. And this threat to their unity. They immediately get to work on solving it. And the way they solve it in the end. Was they, they identify seven leaders. These seven spirit filled guys. Who are actually. Most of whom are Hellenists. Complaint in the first place. And so you find here a wonderful movement of saying, look, I'm not just going to step back and complain. I'm going to step towards and find constructive solutions in the community. And so let me ask you, do you find it more easy to, to identify problems? Or are you more willing to identify problems? Or are you more willing to offer solutions and to press into conversations that can work towards improving the health and the vitality of a growing, of a growing church to maintain unity? So here in Acts chapter 6, growth can challenge the unity of the church. Apostles, the moment this complaint came up, the apostles could have gotten defensive. They could have exacerbated the situation by being defensive or being insecure in their leadership. But instead, they respond with humility. They hear the complaint. They're made aware of the concern. And they immediately go to work solving it and improving it. And you find humility in, the, in their willingness to say, you know, we can't do everything. We need help. They said, we can't do everything. We've got some responsibilities that we cannot give up. And so if this need is, is arising in the life of the church, we need help meeting it. That's humility. A humble person recognizes their limitations. Humble leadership recognizes their lim limitations. This is one of the things that's important about this passage is that the church's failure on this front at first, it wasn't the result of sin. And it wasn't the result of malice. Their failure on this front initially wasn't because they were actually uh, feeling inferior or superior to the Hellenistic Jews. That's not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem wasn't sin or malice. The cause of the problem was not knowing their limitations. It was a capacity problem. The church was growing faster than the leadership could keep up with. And now that they're seeing this and they're experiencing some of the fallout of that, they have to make some adjustments. And humility, that's an inhumility, that's exactly what they do. You see, ministry in the life of the church should never bottleneck. It should never bottleneck dependent upon a leader or a very, very small group of leaders. What we have to be committed to in the life of our church as our church grows is a commitment to breaking bottlenecks. So that ministry can flow to and through the body efficiently and in a sense effortlessly because there's nothing hanging it up because it's not reliant upon a leader or a very small group of leaders. And so they're breaking bottlenecks essentially in this passage. Now there's something about church leadership that I want to speak on. I'll have a little bit more to say about this in a moment. But 
One of my observations, churches or non-denominational churches or some churches that are uh, kind of run in some of those currents where their leadership in the church was really all about the pastor. Singular pastor, everything kind of flowed through that guy. And if it was sticking, it was sticking with him. And many times the church wasn't being served well because everything was flowing into and through this one singular guy. And usually if a church ever lost their pastor, they would go to work trying to replace that pastor, and they would use things like, okay, who is God's man for us? Who is the man to take us into the future? Who is the man to keep the church growing? And that type of language was very common coming out of the 20th century. And that type of language actually, I believe, is a reflection of kind of the American dream of heroes and villains and just that whole movement. I mean, you look at some of the entertainment that was coming out in the mid Mid-20th century, on up to the late 20th century, all, so many movies, so many stories were written about the man. You know, John Wayne, Rambo, those were our heroes, these singular guys who could take on the world by themselves. And they could create just incredible, they could do incredible things as kind of Lone Ranger kind of guys, John Waynes and Rainbows. And I think that mentality, Rambos, not Rainbows, I think that mentality <laughs> kind of spilled over into how we began to view leadership in the life of the church. And that's, I love what's happened as we've turned the corner into the 21st century because in the 21st century, yeah, Rambo 3 or Rambo 5 or 7 or whatever number it was, it did come out, but nobody watched it, right? Because I don't think we as a culture is infatuated with the guy and the hero anymore. I think what we're more inclined towards is Avengers. And the Avengers were quite different from Rambo's and John Wayne's. With the Avengers, you have a group of interdependent people who are working together to accomplish a task. They're working together to accomplish a task together. All flawed, yes, but they're still moving towards something productive together. Well, I think the Avengers is far more biblical than Rambo and John Wayne. I think when we talk about leadership in the life of the church, that's what you want. I think that's what we see in the church of Jerusalem, where you don't just have one apostle dealing with this situation. You have all the apostles. This was shared leadership in that moment. And this shared leadership was, was going to lead and catalyze the church to even sharing the ministry even more broadly and even more widely. And so you have this dynamic and you have this movement from being kind of fatuated with the man or the leader to, to leaders. And that's more of what we want. And that's really kind of why our church is structured the way that it is. But that requires humility, doesn't it? It requires humility for leaders to share influence. It requires humility for leaders to give away responsibility and to defer to others. It requires great humility, and the apostles are going to, going to do that in this moment. So they meet up with the church, and they decide to enlist and to empower others to get more people involved, believing that the church is to come together and serve together so that they might grow Together, They don't want anything bottlenecking with any singular leader. They don't want anything bottlenecking with a very small group of leaders. So they say, we're going to break this bottleneck. We're going to distribute ministry responsibilities widely throughout the church. So growth challenges our humility in the sense that are we willing to do that? Are our leaders willing to give away responsibilities and defer influence? In your own Christianity, are you willing to receive responsibility and receive influence? Or do you live the kind of Christian life that says, my membership to the church is all about coming to hear sermons and to sing songs? You realize that 
membership in the church has less to do with that, that being the place where you go to listen to sermons and to sing songs, and it has a lot more to do with that being where you serve. That's what membership is about in the New Testament. That's when we talk about meaningful membership. That's what we're getting after. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, Paul would use the image of the body of Christ. And so you belonging to a body, you being dependent upon one another. We need each other. Everybody has a role to play. And so you belonging to a body, you being a member to the, of a church has, more to, has less to do with listening to sermons and singing songs and has far more to do with that being where you, where you serve. And so you have this challenge popping up in Acts chapter 6. It's a challenge that every growing church faces, a challenge of our unity, and it can challenge our humility. Are we willing to adapt and grow and give away? Are we willing to engage and serve and be a part? But then the third challenge that pops up is this challenge to our priorities. There's a challenge to our priorities in this passage, and this is what it sounds like in verse 2. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word, the word of God, to wait on tables. Then you look at verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There's a challenge to the priorities as it related to the apostles in this moment. They knew that it wasn't right for anyone's needs to be overlooked in the body. But they also knew it wouldn't be right for them to be the ones to go and do it if that took them away from the ministry of the word. As apostles, they carried a very unique responsibility in the life of the church, especially at that point in time. That if they didn't devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer, who would? If they weren't about teaching the scriptures and helping people find life in Jesus, who's going to do that? So they said, look, the one thing our church cannot do without is this. So it's not that... We need to abandon this to go meet needs in the life of the body. It's that we need to do both the ministry of the word and we need to empower others to help meet needs in the church. So when it comes to priorities, it has to do with you and I finding lanes to run in, lanes that we can engage and fully kind of own in our life together, in our ministry together, in the church together. It ch growth can challenge our priorities because sometimes it is said, if you want your church to grow, you have to be about the ministry of the word. Others say, well, if you want your church to grow, you have to be about meeting needs. And sometimes that puts a wedge between different types of churches. We have some churches that are all about the ministry of the word, and you have other churches that are all about meeting needs. But according to this passage, we have to do both. It's not that we prioritize one to the exclusion of the other. It's that we assign responsibilities in the church. So that some are engaging the ministry of the word as, primary, as being their primary responsibility. And others are engaging and meeting needs in the church and around the city as their primary responsibility. And we come together in the church to share that and to feel that and to go after that together. So we don't have to choose is what I'm saying. A growing church does not have to choose between being devoted to the word and being devoted to meeting needs. A growing church, if it's healthy growth, will always do both. And a growing church must organize, be organized in order to do both. That we have to organize ourselves to be able to engage in the ministry of the world. So what happens here in Acts chapter 6, this is what they're deciding. Apostles, devote yourself to the ministry of the word and to prayer. These other people are going to take charge in helping care for the Hellenistic Jews whose needs were being overlooked. And so they're committing in the end, they're committing to both the ministry of the word and to prayer. It's a beautiful picture. 
And I think what you have here in Acts 6 is kind of the paradigm or the seeds of what's going to blossom in the church later on. Him in that work. He would always go into a later and he would plant churches and the apostles would support him in that work and encourage him in that work. He would always go into a place, he would preach the gospel, a church would be planted, and then he would come back and he would help organize the church so the church could grow in a healthy way. And the way that the churches would organize themselves really kind of fell on two categories. On one hand, you had them appointing elders, identifying pastors. And on the other hand, in some way, they were identifying what was called deacons. When you get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's actually writing a letter to You need a plurality, so you need to appoint other elders to serve with you and to lead with you. But you all, we would describe as a lead servant who are primarily devoted to praying and kind of lead servants. And deacons, on the other hand, would be kind of lead servants. Lead servants who are meeting needs in the life of the church, and that's how Paul would organize churches. That's how we as a church here in Seattle are essentially organized. We have elders, we have deacons, we have servant leaders, and we have lead servants. Now, as an elder or a pastor in this church, my primary responsibility concerns the ministry of the word. Now, that does not mean that I don't meet needs as a pastor. In Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God, he would define greatness according to service. He was he would talk about the first being last, last being first, and how we serve one another. Jesus himself would wash the feet of his disciples. So saying that I am devoted to the ministry of the word doesn't mean I do that to the exclusion of meeting needs. But it does mean that when push comes to shove and I have to give my time and attention in one direction, my responsibility is to go in this direction. And when we organize the church and we empower you to get involved and to participate in what Jesus is doing, that's going to flip. That's going to turn, right? There are needs in the life of the body that we need your help to meet. There's care that needs to be given. There's ministry that needs to be executed. And we want to empower you and enlist you and encourage you to lead the charge in meeting those needs. Now, does that mean you never engage in the ministry of the word? No, and here's why. First guy listed and who was appointed to care for these, these Greek-speaking widows was a guy named Stephen. In the very next chapter, Stephen is going to get in a lot of trouble. And he's going to get in a lot of trouble. Why? Because he's engaged in the ministry of the word. He's proclaiming the gospel. And so we want to think in this kind of dynamic so that we're not saying, okay, this is the only lane I run in. I never cross the lane. Or I do this to the exclusion of that. No, it's about priorities. It's about divvying up priorities and responsibilities in the life of the church. Elders and deacons have different responsibilities. So we, this is how we are as a church. We have a group of elders and we have deacons. Now, when it comes to deacons, these lead servants in the life of the church, they help us meet needs. And this would basically fall on the shoulders of every missional community leader. If you are a missional community leader, you are considered a deacon. You are a lead servant in the body of Christ called the Hallows Church. If you are the designated leader of a ministry team, whether it's the justice and mercy ministry team or whether it's the hospitality ministry team or whatever the case may be, you are a deacon, a lead servant in the life of the church. And we are organized this way to distribute ministry as widely as possible so that it doesn't bottleneck with me and it doesn't bottleneck with a small group of elders. Because not only is that bad for us, it's bad for you because it keeps you from being a part of what Jesus is doing in the life of the church. So we want to break bottlenecks and distribute ministry widely. We want servant leaders and lead servants fully engaging in the life of 
the church. Now that phrase, when Paul says, and Peter says, or the apostles say, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. That phrase, to wait on tables, that's a verb, and it's actually the, it's tra- it's a translation of the verbal form for, for what would later become the noun deacon. And it's a powerful image. It's not right for us to give up this to wait on tables, not because to waiting on tables is something inferior. It just doesn't fall in their primary responsibility. But to wait on tables, when you hear that phrase, don't think about your experience at a restaurant last night. As great as it is for you to go to a restaurant and have somebody come and bring you your food and take your check and be your table waiter in that regard, I want you to think a little bit more robustly. The image behind that word in the New Testament and in the first century refers to the head of a household who would open up their home and host people. That's more of what's going on with this idea of waiting tables in its purest sense in the first century. This would be the head of a household who's hosting people, who's connecting people, who's serving people, yes, but he's bringing communities. Community, if you're a ministry team leader, basically, I want you to be someone who throws parties. That's kind of what it meant. I'm going to open my home, I'm going to throw a party, and I want people to connect. I want people to be loved. I want people to be cared for. I want people to get involved in what's happening. And that's what you do. If you're a ministry team leader, let's send to it and connect them to one mercy ministry team. You want to open up that team, bring disciples into it, and connect them to one another and host a party for that group. Encouraging them, loving them, leading them in that way. If this looks like of helping us open up this space so we can host disciples, we can host our church gatherings, we can host guests, giving for everyone involved. And so as kind of the leader of those teams, you are the one who's going to be infusing morale and infusing energy and reminding people of why we do what we do as long as we do it. This is someone who throws parties. Bring people into your teams. Help them connect to you. Help them connect to one another. And then connect them to the needs of the church. Now, later on tonight, I'll have an opportunity to identify some of the ministry teams, and I'm going to encourage you to prayerfully consider where you are leading or where you are serving and just kind of evaluate those things in your own heart. But before then, there is this moment where they identify these these leaders to wait on tables in the life of the church, to care for the Hellenistic Jews in the church, specifically the widows. But I want you to see how there are some qualifications that have been identified. Now, just because you want to lead in a certain area doesn't mean you should. Just because you want to lead out in the life of the church doesn't mean you're qualified. You may even be sincere in your desire, but you may not be sincerely qualified because you're missing some of the things that are called for in the scriptures. So if you want to lead out in the life of the church, give your attention to some of these things so that you can grow into leadership and be given certain responsibilities and certain areas of influence in the church. Three things that pop up in this passage. One, All of these leaders were to be spiritual, meaning they were to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. They were to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They were to love Jesus and believe the gospel. This was priority qualification number one. But not only were they to be spiritual people who had a vibrant relationship with Jesus, they were to be reputable people. These were leaders in the church. These were members of the church that had a good reputation People looked to them for leadership because they were trustworthy. They weren't complainers and backbiters. They were trustworthy servants who loved Jesus and loved people. And so their reputation was positive in the church. So they were spiritual and they were reputable. And we want leaders who are spiritual and we want leaders who are You circle that word wisdom and that's where they were capable. 
You circle that word wisdom, and that's what it's getting after. These were, these were people who had skills to do what they were being asked to do. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is applied knowledge. And so they were spiritual, they were reputable, and they were capable. They could do the things that they were being asked to do. Now, if you are leading a ministry team, it's because we believe you are wise. We believe you are capable of gathering people, connecting people, encouraging people, inspiring people, leading people. And as a leader of a ministry team or a leader of, missional, of a missional community, that's where you are. Now, you may be someone who's spiritual and you may be reputable, but you don't feel very capable in certain areas. And you may have an interest to serve, let's say, on the audiovisual team or serve on, as a missional community leader, whatever the case may be. You're spiritual, you're reputable, but you don't feel very capable. And if that's the case, and after talking with myself or Bryant or Sarah or any of our other pastoral ministerial staff, you would... We would help you kind of discover, okay, are you, are you capable? And if not, we would say, why don't you join a team, and then we can help you grow in that competence. We can help you grow in that capability. So that that too, that qualification can be met. So everybody who's leading ministry teams, we hope and pray and we seek after leaders who are spiritual, reputable, and capable. They can do the things that they are being assigned and given to do in the life of the church. And when we find ourselves kind of living in that rhythm where we have lead servants and servant leaders, where we're breaking bottlenecks and distributing ministries so that priorities can be upheld, the ministry of the word and ministering to needs, that's when we become, that's when we become who we're supposed to be to the city of Seattle. And here's what I mean by this. When you read through the gospel of Luke, you're going to see Jesus doing two things. Jesus himself engaged in the ministry of the word, and Jesus himself engaged in ministering to needs. He did both, and he did both perfectly. Now, sometimes we read the Gospels to the exclusion of Acts, or we read the Gospels to the exclusion of the rest of the New Testament, and we draw the conclusion, well, that's supposed to be me, that I'm following Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. I need to engage in ministry of the word, and I need to engage in ministering to needs, and then we try really hard, and we're not quite getting it right, or we run ourselves ragged, and we can't fully do what we're supposed to do as disciples and as Christians, and then we burn out and flame out and bell out. But if we understand who we are supposed to be together in the church, that changes. In 1 Corinthians, we are referred to as the body of Christ, a singular body. We are members of that body together. And that means the weight of kingdom ministry doesn't fall on a single disciple. The weight of the Christian life does not fall on a small group of Christians within the church. That's when bottleneck happens. Because we are the body of Christ, it is together where we live the Christian life. It is together where we follow Jesus as disciples. It is together where we carry forth the ministry of the word and we minister to needs. So I don't want you to feel, if you're one of those Christians who thinks, I've got to do everything if I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. No. You are to do some things in connection with other Christians who are doing some things in a community of faith called the church, the body of Christ. And when we are organized in this kind of way, when we are doing this kind of activity, that's when we showcase Jesus to the city of Seattle. That's when the imagery of the body of Christ starts making sense. 
so that the city can say, okay, I want to see Jesus, but I'm not going to see Jesus fully if I'm looking at one person. They're going to say, I want to see Jesus, but I'm only going to see Jesus fully when I'm looking at his body, when I'm looking at people, when I'm looking at community, when I'm looking at the church. That's how churches grow. That's how churches make an impact by being the body together, word and deed, ministry, being shared in the life of the church. And that's what we want. That's what we desire. That's what we hope for. This is what goes down here in Acts chapter 6. They organize themselves along these kinds of lines. And then in verse 7, you see the growth of the church continues. They get organized to accommodate what Jesus is doing. They get organized to be the body of Christ together. And then growth continued. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God spread. Disciples increased in number, and even the priests became obedient to the faith. That was a big deal, because for a priest to become obedient to the faith, they basically lost their job. So if they become obedient to the Christian faith, saying Jesus is the Messiah, they're not going to be serving in the temples or the synagogues that they once served in. So if that's the case, and now these priests are moving towards the church, and they're obeying the faith, how are those priests going to be a growing church? That must be organized in ways that can care for and meet the needs of everyone who is a part of it. So you have here a church that is continuing to grow because they made wise and spirit-led decisions about what they were doing and who they were supposed to be in the city of Jerusalem. So two final thoughts. I hope that we as a church grow up in spiritual maturity. The growth that we're talking about is a growth that says we're going to grow up in spiritual maturity. We want to become obedient to the faith. We want the word of God to spread. We're going to grow up in spiritual maturity. How do you know if that's happening? Well, are you complaining less? Are you complaining less and constructing more? Chances are you're growing up in spiritual maturity. Are you against anyone in the church? Or are you for everyone in the church? If you're for more people in the church, then chances are you're growing up in spiritual maturity. That's the kind of growth we want. But we don't want to just grow up We want to grow out in societal impact. We want to grow out and seeing more people coming to know the Jesus that you and I know. I mean, do you believe Jesus is enough for you? And if you believe that Jesus is enough for you, do you believe that he can be enough for other people? And if he's enough for you, then why wouldn't you want to share that with anyone else? If Jesus is the source of your hope so that you have a refuge to run to when all hell breaks loose in your life, then why wouldn't you want more people to experience that and more people to know that? A Christian that doesn't want to see more people become Christians is kind of missing the joy of Jesus. They're missing the point of the gospel. A church that doesn't want to grow, not just up in spiritual maturity, but out in societal impact is a church that has probably missed the whole point of their salvation. We want people to meet the Jesus we know because we believe he's good. We believe he's God. We believe he's alive. We believe all of reality centers around him. So we want more and more people to come to know that and to experience what we have experienced. We want to be a church that grows. Yes, we want to grow up in spiritual maturity, but we also want to grow out in spiritual impact, which means we want to express and embody the gospel together. 
And so I'm going to pray in that direction. Would you pray with me?